today we bring you a talk from 2016, a conversation with the Archbishop. In this talk, Archbishop Freer and his conversation partners discuss one of the most pressing issues of our time, the quest for meaning. I hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to Federation Square for this conversation with the Archbishop. As we gather this morning, we acknowledge the original custodians of the land on which we meet, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we honour their elders past and present. My name is Chris Lancaster. I'm the vicar of the Anglican parish in Altona and Laverton here in Melbourne, and it's my pleasure and privilege to be the MC for this morning's conversation. This morning, uh, we welcome as uh, our guest to speak with the Archbishop, Hugh McKay, for a conversation on the quest for meaning. Hugh McKay, known to many of us, is a social researcher and author of 17 books, 10 in the field of social psychology and ethics, and six novels. And his latest book, Beyond Belief, published this year, and his sixth novel, uh, Infidelity, was published in 2013. And I'm sure that he won't need a great deal of provocation to brandish his latest book, Beyond Belief, which is easy to find uh, in bookshops uh, already. In recognition of his pioneering work in social research, he's been elected a Fellow of the Australian Psychological Society and awarded honorary doctorates by Charles Sturt, Macquarie, New South Wales and Western Sydney Universities. A newspaper columnist for over 25 years, Hugh is currently an honorary professor of social science at the University of Wollongong, an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Arts at Charles Sturt University and a patron of the Asylum Seekers Centre. He was previously Deputy Chairman of the Australia Council Chairman of Trustees of Sydney Grammar School and the inaugural Chairman of the ACT Government's Community Inclusion Board. And last year, Hugh was appointed an officer in the Order of Australia. And to uh, moderate and hold the conversation this morning, we welcome back John Cleary, veteran ABC broadcaster and one of Australia's best-known commentators on religion. In his 30-year career with the ABC, he's worked extensively in both radio and television, but he's known principally for his association with Sunday nights on ABC local radio and the religion report on ABC Radio National. John began his career in Perth, was one of the original Compass team on ABC TV and a co-presenter of the philosophy program Meridian on Radio National in the 1990s. For several years, John also appeared in a regular slot on the ABC youth network Triple J. His 1992 book on the Salvation Army in Australia was awarded the Christian Book of the Year. So would you please welcome Hugh McKay and John Cleary, together with Archbishop Philip. Thank you and good morning. It's great to be here and you've had a long night to, uh, to prepare for this occasion. Hugh McKay is not just one of Australia's great social researchers. I think Hugh is one of Australia's great communicators. And I think the secret to that is perhaps the fact that he communicates with issues that are of concern to us. Uh, it seems that when Hugh writes, he's writing for you and me. And uh, this book, Beyond Belief, is one of those that takes us to those questions that many are asking, uh, even around dinner parties these days. It's no longer a forbidden question the question of why. And it's a question of why that goes not just to who I am, but where I fit, not only in this world, but in this cosmos that we're all increasingly being seen to be part of. The question that's asked, if one thinks it's relevant or not, uh, seems to be of universal significance, even to such die-hard uh, atheist apologist as the late Christopher Hitchens. If you were listening to my program last Sunday evening, we were talking to somebody who's written a biography of Hitchens from a Christian point of view. And one of the observations made was about a Pew Research um, Institute in the United States discussion between Christopher Hitchens, his brother, and several other people. And Christopher Hitchens made this observation. He said, Christendom, or what we've known as Christendom for a thousand, two thousand years perhaps, disappeared in the 20th century, destroyed, in two, and it destroyed itself in two dreadful world wars. But I am yet to be satisfied that we have found anything that can replace it. And I think that's 
the question that's nagging, Hugh, because one of the interesting things in your book is that you note even though things have declined in terms of religious belief quite precipitously in the West in the last 50 years or so, real estate agents are still talking about people's desire to have a local church yes. in their community. Yes. Yes. Not for me, but I like it. <laughs> Why do we continue to like it? <laughs> yes, thanks, John. Uh, that's part of a very complicated uh, set of information about contemporary Australia and, and Western liberal democracies like ours. It's a pretty general pattern, though not a global pattern. I mean, Christopher Hitchens is absolutely wrong, of course, uh, about the death of religion in the 20th century. Religion continues to grow globally. Uh, by the middle of the century, 80% of the world's population will be identified with one of the four great global religions, Christianity, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism and Islam. Uh, so that's, that's the truth about the world. It's a slightly different picture in Australia. But yes, in a, in a, the, 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 the thing you refer to has been quantified in a survey which I've quoted in the new book, a survey of non-churchgoers. Uh, people who never go to church, 88% of them said they like having a church in the local suburb. And in my own research over the years, I've often heard people saying things like, I love to see groups of people outside church on Sunday morning, as though to say, isn't it nice to know that sort of thing still goes on? Uh, I won't necessarily be attaching myself to them. Although, uh, even, even the question of people's relationship with the institutional church is very complicated. In the last census, 61% of Australians ticked Christian. Now we compare that figure with the 8% who are weekly churchgoers, the 15% who are reasonably regular once a month or more often, the 25% at Easter and at Christmas, if you, if you add in carols by candlelight, it's well over a third. So, but it's, it's true to say that the vast majority of Australians will never enter a church this year, not even for a wedding. 70% of weddings take place on non-church premises now in Australia. But while all this uh, decline has been occurring in church attendance, there is this persistent identification with Christianity and when it comes to the education of your kids, record enrolments at church schools. So there's these apparently contradictory trends. We're not going to have anything to do with the church except we want our kids to be at a church school. In New South Wales, the national figure is, is I think 40% of secondary school students are now in church-based schools. In New South Wales, it's 50% of, of secondary um, pupils. So from the point of view of a researcher, this is an absolute gold mine. I mean, there's all this contradictory material. What, is, what does it all mean? What is going on between? What do people mean when they tick Christian but show no sign of Christian faith or practice in their weekly lives? Archbishop Philip, you're somebody of a generation who has seen and witnessed this decline as part of your life as a Christian and a Christian leader. Both you and I, perhaps of a generation that can remember uh, attending Sunday school pre-television when there were 150, 200, 300 kids pouring out of local Sunday schools on a Sunday morning. You've tracked the decline that Hugh has observed through your own experience. For you, what are the markers of that as, as you've tracked it through and seen it from the inside? Well, I suppose in contrast to what you might expect, I didn't really have a particularly um, socialised uh, upbringing in Christianity. So it was really only from my 20s now to being 61, about 40 years that I've been part of that. And so to me, on the inside of that, a lot of it seems to have been upside. Uh, and I think I've been involved in, in parishes and churches that grew uh, and uh, people were attracted to membership. They were finding uh, in a new generation engagement in, into life. I've been, just in the last couple of weeks, to a few of our... Well, I'll name one place, particularly town to Cryo, which on many of the uh, people who don't know Melbourne, many of the social indicators, one of the most disadvantaged of the postcodes of poverty. And uh, you know, a wonderful story to see there of the integration of that church with its local community. Now, clearly not everyone in that community 
participates in that church, but they host uh, some wonderful programs for, uh, for refugees and asylum seekers. They have a, a really great uh, commitment to social welfare. Uh, it, it's a highly uh, diverse community of people from different backgrounds. It's a Christian community and people uh, still come there and people in a, a new, newer generation than mine come there, I think, to explore questions of meaning and life purpose. So I think there are a lot of uh, outliers that, uh, yes, I mean, the, the mega trends are, are clearly there and I wouldn't want to uh, contradict those. But I think that when you go to some of these, these local places where there's a high level of activity and uh, you know, probably not, it may not be more than, say, number of Sunday attenders may not be more than 150 or 160. It's not, you know, not, not enormous compared to the suburb, but the, the leverage that they have into that community is significant. And I can imagine people in that community feeling warm about the existence of that community and the place that symbolises it. So I, I can certainly resonate with what uh, Hugh is saying. You know, there's, there's ever been, in a way, a, a golden era where you just sort of open the door and things happen. I think we fantasise that. I think we're dealing with questions of uh, people's choice and often about people's sacrifice. Christianity asks people to sacrifice a view of self and replace it with a, a view of self in relation to others and God. So there is personal choice and it's not a, it's not a kind of a cost-free a cost choice that people are, are being urged to make. There we have the boundaries of this discussion. People's frustration, it seems, with what is being delivered at some areas of religion are the, and the big questions, and yet these continuing signs of hope in communities. We're going to burrow down into some of that this morning. Hugh, let's look at some of the factors that people tell you relate to their walking away. Those who say, no, nah, given up, are they factors about the whole question of God and transcendence, or are they about something else? Uh, well, there's a very long list of, of factors involved in this, as, as there is for the opposite. There's a very long list of reasons why people do go to church and why, as the Archbishop says, in some, in some pockets, attendance is actually increasing. In fact, I think the national trend has bottomed and there's a slight lift. There's certainly a lift in Pentecostalism. There's a lift in attendance at cathedrals. You might, without wanting to sound derogatory, I'm not at all derogatory, but both of those are somewhat theatrical uh, in what they offer. Uh, and, that, and that's where the growth seems to be around the West, including Australia. So it's not, it's not a picture of endless decline. But the people who've stopped going, uh, first of all, I think we have to acknowledge they live in a culture which is antithetical to the messages of religion in general, Christianity in particular, a culture which many analysts now describe as a me culture, again, not uniquely Australian, a very Western phenomenon, but we have been relentlessly bombarded by propaganda which is the opposite of the Christian message. It's come to us from consumerism, mass marketing, saying you're entitled to material wealth, prosperity, comfort, keep buying stuff, and you'll feel better, and it's all about you. And from what I now think of as the happiness industry, they've been bombarding us with the message that you're entitled to personal happiness. If you're not happy, there's something wrong with you, as, as though to discount the full spectrum of human emotions in which the so-called dark ones, like sadness, disappointment, failure, loss, uh, have much more to teach us about what it means to be human than the rather ephemeral, bright, shiny ones. Uh, but that's relentless too, and that's, that's also saying it's all about me. So in a way, there's a contest between a culture that's saying, how would you like to be rich and happy, and a church that's saying, how would you like to be kind and compassionate? And many people, particularly those who embrace prosperity theology, will say, I'd like both, thank you. <laughs> but that's a, that's a big factor in the exodus, I think, John, that that the culture has been relentlessly against this. But the other more specific reasons do relate to the church. I mean, obviously, the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse has had a really predictable, really strongly negative view on people's perceptions of the institution. The Roman Catholic Church, far more so than any of the other Christian denominations, but none of them are exempt. But that's not... That's not the only thing people say about the institutional church. There has been, 
and, and again, just a bit of context, it's not just religious institutions, institutions in general in Australia have been suffering a slump. Politics, the banks, the mass media, the universities, the trade unions, and the church is in there, a sense of maybe it's a big powerful institution that gets corrupted by its own power. So they're those big picture stuff, but down to the local level, people who've stopped going to church will say things like it's boring. I finally realised it had no relevance to my life, so I just stopped going. People who are closely attached to a local faith community never say that, um, because even if it is boring, even if, even if the sermon is a bit off the pace, they're part of a community that's felt very self-sustaining and supporting. But people will also say, I felt excluded, I felt as if I was being looked down on, um, in some appalling cases that I encountered in the interviews I did for the book, people were actually asked to leave, either because they were not prepared to give assent to certain doctrinal points, can't believe literally in the virgin birth or the resurrection or creation or the miracles, whatever it might be, well, sorry, you're not one of us, or uh, aspects of the saddest case, I think, of a, of a person who left a church, was a, an elderly woman who late in life was divorced by her husband. Um, she and her family were devout, loyal participants in the life of that local church. And within a few weeks of the divorce, her minister came to her and said, divorced people are not welcome in this congregation. So she and her family all left uh, and of course never went back to that church or any other. There were also many women who say, in, in the wake of the gender revolution, or in the midst of the gender revolution, it's not over, I'm a liberated woman, but in the church that I was going to, I was a second-class citizen. It's a, it was a church uh, utterly in the grip of male supremacist culture, and I felt, why would I go there to be treated like that when I'm not treated like that in the rest of my life? So th there's a very lot, that's a sample of the reasons. It's interesting there that most of the reasons you gave did not focus on the, the whole idea of the transcendent or how we grasp a sense of greater meaning. Mm. And that echoes what uh, the, the idea of people like the idea of the church around the community, but also opens doors for the church. Yet the church still has to come to terms, Archbishop, with the big institutional questions that are being asked. That is collapse in mm. authority. What does that mean about where the church goes and how the church presents itself to the community? There are big questions that are open, not just about institutional structures, but about creeds and doctrines and the way people respond to those these days. That that. I guess is the sort of stuff that that you want well, to know more about from people. Yeah, like well, I think you. that um, the the way things are organised uh, are not necessarily the same everywhere. It's interesting here in Melbourne amongst Anglicans, we're not as monolithic as even Anglicans are in other parts of the country. In that, pretty much all of our schools are are incorporated in, in their own uh, identity as their own boards, and they, they, I don't have any governance role, the church doesn't have a, it, it has a connection, but doesn't sort of reach in to control them. Our community service agencies like Anglicare, Brothers St Lawrence and Benitas are in their own structure. So in, in a way we are a more, um, atomised wouldn't be the word, but we have more uh, nodes of, of uh, I suppose, the expressions of Christian faith in service or education. It's in the, in the parish level that we are together as a diocese, but you go to other parts of Australia and uh, things would be more monolithic. Uh, everything would be under the, in a way, the, the ecclesial uh, control properly. So I think there are different models, and I think that the... Uh, I would agree that Christendom, uh, in the way it was experienced, has come to an end, which would be the alignment of uh, certain perceptions of Christian faith and the organisation of the state. I think that clearly uh, concluded during the 20th century, and I think that the, uh, the catastrophic wars originating out of Europe uh, probably a significant reason for that. But I think that where you find, in a way, the optimism is in the more grassroots experiences of things, and where you find the cynicism, I think, is in the imagined monolith of a hierarchy. So I'm, I'm probably the person at the point of the, uh, of the rejection, because people like, you know, people like me who are hierarchs, uh, generally, I think, in the kind of the research, imagined as the ones out of touch and unconnected. But I think that the church always is going to be 
alive on the basis of its, its grassroots experience. You know, we're not, even though we look like it, we're not primarily uh, an organisation that exists to be organisational. We primarily exist to be relational in community. When you read Hugh's book, what are the things that challenge you? Where you read it through, my goodness, of course. Are there any of those moments as you go through a book like the one Hugh's provided? Oh, I think there, is, there are, and I have, I have validation of this. I think that the experience that um, Hugh is saying of the disengagement of people is one I experienced. I was just coming down from Sydney on a plane very late on Friday last week, and I was sitting in one of the seats that had a bit of an exit row, and the uh, flight attendant was sitting opposite me, and we are having a discussion. I was reading parts of Hugh's book, and I said, I'm reading this, we're going to have a conversation, and she... Uh, she said, oh, that's exactly, that describes me. She said, I, I grew up in a Greek Orthodox family. She said, but I, I don't go to church now. She said, but, uh, and, and I don't think God would want to know me. I'm, you know, I, I've kind of been a bad person. I've turned my face against God. And I said, no, I think God hears the yearning of your heart. God will hear your prayers if you pray to God. And she said, oh, I'll go home and try that. So I think that, you know, I had, I, but I had an example of what Hugh was saying. Of, but but I, I was finding just, you know, and I, I generally go around the place looking fairly obviously what I am and people interested to know, you're a priest of some kind. But I had a, a, you know, a couple of engaging conversations. They flow. As I sat in the seat, I was sort of bending out my bags down and a woman behind me grabbed my cross and kissed it. So, you know, I thought, I, I was thinking as I was reading Hugh's book, look, there, is, there was a lot of energy about faith and about Christianity, and I think the task is there, how, how that connects with, with other things is before us all. SBNR <laughs> is a, a, an acronym that you've sort of throw out of the book at us, yes. and it's something that, that resonates with the sorts of worlds that we're all facing now, and with that hunger for spirituality, but... Yes, and this relates very much to what the Archbishop was just describing. I mean, well, SBNR, I should deal with specifically, that, that arose from a conversation I had with a young student as part of the preparation for the book. I, I interviewed a lot of people, as I always do, to get some fresh insights. And this, this young bloke said, oh, by the way, I'm SBNR. I had no idea what he meant. Would anyone in the, in the audience describe themselves as SBNR? There's an SBNR. <laughs> ah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> sorry? The ABNU, atheist but not unchristian. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, indeed, one, another of the people I, I, I spoke to in the book who is a theologian said, I think I'm CBNR, Christian but not religious, which is a very Bonhoeffer-ish kind of position. But the SBNR, this bloke said, all his friends are SBNR, spiritual but not religious. He then went on to describe, of course, what, what that meant. And I think it's a very significant movement. I, I think the acronym is not well known. It's not, not well known in this room. And it's not well known generally. But I grabbed it as a title for one of the chapters of my book because it captures what so many people are saying. And even mm. the two people that you mentioned, Archbishop, on the flight, would probably still say, I mean, they, they would probably still say spiritual but not religious. These are people who are saying, I have no truck with the institution or I've lost contact with the institution, but do not write me off as a mere materialist or, especially among young people, do not lump me in with all those alleged narcissists of my generation. That's not me. I acknowledge that there is a spiritual dimension to life. I want to nurture my own spiritual dimension because I recognise, and here this is very congruent with the messages coming out of positive psychology, I recognise that unless I'm putting my faith in something larger than myself, then I'm a poor, feeble thing, that, that the sense of meaning, the sense of purpose in my life comes from placing my faith in something greater than myself. Now, the SBNRs are all over the place when it comes to what they're placing their faith in, but the, the, the ones that I spoke to who talked about light bulb moments, who talked about moments of insight or inspiration when they suddenly saw things in a new way, there were two features of what they always said, and this is very consistent with almost every mystical tradition that we've inherited. One is, I suddenly realised that we're all one, that the difference between you and me is insignificant. We, we're all in this thing together. 
and we can only sensibly think, our, think of ourselves as a unity, therefore, the only reasonable way for us to re respond to each other is lovingly. Uh, so when Christians talk about the impact of their faith on the way they live, they're always talking about the spirit of loving kindness, the, the mindset which is charitable, love in the motivational sense, not in the emotional sense. And when the SBNRs talk about their journey, it sounds very similar. Uh, and just as a footnote to that, I should say also a footnote to the Archbishop's uh, lovely story about the Greek Orthodox woman who was going home to pray. I hope she was stopping at the bookshop at the airport <laughs> on, the way, <laughs> on her way home. Um, but there is this phenomenon, and it goes across the spectrum of non-churchgoers, really, I think, which I described in the book as faith envy. These are people who will not, and, and many SBNRs will be in this category as well. They will say, I'm not, I, I don't have faith in God or in a God, they almost certainly do. You'd have to define what the God is. But I kind of wish I did. You know, I know that my, my sense of meaning and purpose would be richer, would be clearer if I did have some of this faith that I see in other people. I meet someone uh, and I see that they're glowing with this faith, which gives them some sort of clarity of purpose. Uh, sense of the meaningfulness of their own lives. And I wish I had that. I had a call from a very angry journalist uh, just after the book came out. He was doing a review. He got on the phone and said, now look, I'm an atheist. A conversation that starts with, now look, is not going to be, <laughs> is not going to be a great conversation. Now look, I'm an atheist. Uh, and uh, and I'm, I'm very cranky about this book. You seem far too polite to religion. So he went on about why was I being so polite to religion. It was a very strange opening um, gambit. But then it emerged, of course, that, that his anger, as is so often the case, was concealing something very significant. He said, you know, there's one part of this book that really got to me, that stuff about faith envy. You know, every Anzac Day I go to a service and I sing the hymns and I think this is all rubbish, but I wish I could believe it. You know, I wish I had it too. Uh, this is like another person in the book who said, I'm really angry with God for not existing. <laughs> Archbishop Philip, there seems here to be the seeds of an opportunity. Is part of the problem, and it can be presented as a problem, and other people would present it as an opportunity, that the way in which people have this sort of incoherent spirituality that they, they sense about them, the thing that they probably feel uncomfortable about, not so much with the church as a building, but the church as an institution, is it wants to tell them how their faith should be, what sort of box it should fit in, rather the institution has been seen as the deliverer of a set set of facts in a box or so-called yeah. facts in a box. And this is not, doesn't resonate with the way people are sort of want to grope towards something, to, to sort yeah, of well, tease that, it out. Yeah, I think that, that uh, I can understand what you're saying. I think it, it, it's, it's, it, to me it's incontrovertible that uh, something like religion has a, a long story and it provides a grid over which uh, it will seek to explain meaning. But curiously, people don't seem to have the same hostility towards consumerism or other things, which, and again, is another grid over which, you know, I mean, there's a whole lots of things in my life that I, I didn't feel I was inadequate about until I, you know, read something or saw something or there was uh, suddenly, you know, uh, uh, a thing or an entertainment that it was being told to me that I would be uh, uh, somewhat inadequate unless I sought after them. You know, this is where I think it does require some very uh, brutal honesty on ourselves because we can, we can easily subscribe uh, wholeheartedly and without criticism to, to one, one set of grids that uh, for reasons are attractive to us to construct our experience or interpret it in, but we can be hostile towards others. And I, and I can understand that uh, in a world where most of us know something about science, where we have um, an understanding, something about the repeatability of events, things are true if they are repeatable. Christianity, it talks about the uniqueness of events, the revelation to Moses on Mount Sinai, the the incarnation of Christ, his death and resurrection, we say uh, his death was once and for all upon the cross. We're talking about things which are singular and unique. Now, that's a, an entirely different uh, kind of construct of logic and truth to what I think that people understand 
scientific truths are or how we're told people understand science that way. So I think you've got things that, that are, are at variance. Now, um, whether we want to have just, you know, we believe we can just hold one thing to the exclusion of all others, I think we can actually hold to the, what are the, the logic and the truth of Christianity and the truth of science together. But I think there, there are voices more in other countries, more in the US, I think, than Australia, that want to argue these are absolute incompatibilities. They're like oil and water. They can't mix. So I think that the, it, some of it is about how we, we can cope with dissonance, how we can cope with things not always fitting. And I, I think there's a long tradition in Christianity that uh, anomaly and, and dissonance is, is part of the experience of being a spiritual believer. Do you think it's also partly the problem that the church, those going into uh, religious education institutions, being trained as priests or um, whatever other religious formation, were for many years, say for the last part of the last 50 years at least, a long way ahead of where their congregations were in terms of discussions about the nature of God and what we can understand even within traditions such as Christianity, and left people in the pews with a very primitive idea of their faith. And then along, perhaps from the 1980s on, people have become more articulate and informed about the journey themselves. You see the popularity of, of people like Jack Spong recently, but you can go back to Paul Tillich and shaking the foundations in the 1950s and 60s. And congregations were never brought along on that journey. Ordinary Christians were never brought along on that journey. And many of them, when they found this stuff, just said, ah, I'm out of here. Oh, I think to some extent there, there is... Well, this is one of the, the parts of the journey of the decay of Christendom, I think, in the 20th century, because you had the, uh, uh, the whole development of, of what's called critical scholarship uh, in the 19th century of uh, people saying, let, let us use literary critical techniques to look at uh, sacred texts like the Bible and understand how it, it, it may have been written. And, and I think if you, if you have a, an exclusive view that it, it is... Uh, revealed with uh, no human involvement at all, you would, you would feel, say, in, in that matter a gap. But I think that um, most people uh, who have gone through theological training are also aware of some of the fads and fashions of critical scholarship. So what was popular, as I spoke to some older priests, that they all had in their, um, their training of, say, uh, Rudolf Bultmann in the 1960s, would no longer be uh, central. Other things have come to replace it. There's been reader reception scholarship of, of sacred text and and I think that people you know to give to give them their their due as as leaders of church communities people are wanting not just to always be sort of reinterpreting someone's latest idea to congregations they're wanting to uh, inform their understanding and their preaching but I think most of all relate what they they preach to the life of people and I think that a lot of the, the preaching of people is uh, is informed by the circumstances of their congregants. And I think that they, you know, it's, it's not necessarily going like to a, every, every week to a mini theological seminar, but you're going to an engagement about your life and the long tradition as received through the kind of, you know, the, the, the best scholarship and, and wisdom, certainly, but it's not just about hearing, you know, a little seminar on scholarship. You uh, absolutely agree, of course, with what the Archbishop is saying, but back to the one of the facets of your question, John, I think is, is um, reflected very strongly in, in some of the conversations I had for this book. Because I think what you're suggesting is that the sort of core beliefs, I'm not, not talking about, you're, I think you're making an important distinction, which I would also make between belief and faith. Mm. Uh, belief being the assent we give to propositions that are unproven. Faith being something that we, that we, in, where we invest in some idea of a thing that is going to compensate us for our frailty and inadequacy and tapping into something larger than ourselves. Faith is an evolving journey kind of thing, equipping us to live with doubt, uncertainty, ambiguity, whereas belief uh, of the prescriptive, dogmatic, institutional kind gives people a sense of certainty uh, which can, by the way, become a sense of arrogant certainty. We've got the answer here and everyone, everyone's belief system leads them to think they've got the answer and everyone's beliefs look weird to people who don't share them. But I think one of the, one of the implications of the point you were making 
is that many people have deserted Christianity on the basis not of the faith, but of the beliefs and have said, look, if you're asking me to believe literally in this or this or this, things like miracles, virgin birth, bodily resurrection and so on, uh, then I can't do that anymore. That's where the science religion contest uh, often occurs. But many other people, including many Christians, will say that that's not the issue. These narratives are laden with metaphorical power. And if you want to believe this literally, that's fine. If you don't want to believe it literally, that's fine. But in either case, the metaphorical power, what, what the resurrection symbolizes, uh, what, 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 what it's saying about us, what it's saying about human existence, what the miracles are saying. I mean, did, did Jesus feed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch? A few bits of bread and a couple of fish. Well, some people will say, yes, absolutely. That, that's, that's a sign of the power of the Son of God. This was, this was a miracle. Other people, particularly in the post-Enlightenment tradition, will say, nonsense. You know, that sounds like a trick. I would not be impressed by a person who did something like that because it contradicts everything we know about the laws of nature. But it's a fantastic story if you look at its metaphorical power uh, to, to teach us something about the multiplier effect in acts of loving kindness. Act kindly, act charitably, and the ripples will go out and before you know where you are, 5,000 people will have been affected by one simple act. In that context, and Archbishop, perhaps I'd ask you first, what then is the way forward for the church? Because the church itself, or, or people who believe the message of the church, believe that there is something that recommends it, that it's not just a marketplace of beliefs and you accept whatever happens to fit you at the moment, that there is some ultimate truth here at the core that says, no, I wear a pectoral cross because I believe it stands for something uniquely worthwhile, mm. but I don't want to bash you over the head with it. Well, look, you mightn't be surprised that I, I actually believe in the historic faith of Christianity as it's presented, uh, and I think I, I understand that. I mean, I'm aware of why, I, why people might think I, um, I shouldn't believe that, but I, I hold those views, and I think you hold them in a certain... Uh, there's a certain paradox about these things in the way I said, because if you are of a, an understanding that God can act in in singular and unrepeatable ways, and, and that the evidence we have from ancient texts of people who were there at the time receive them as that, that that seems to be what I understand the whole religious tradition of God connecting with the world is about. So I see that, and I, and I think that Hugh is, in a way, moving into a, uh, something of a preaching class for us here in, in terms of, you know, how you, how you might uh, exposit some of those things and, and say, well, you know, even if you don't hold that, these truths would apply. And I think there'd be many preachers who would speak that way. But I think that in, in the end, if it was not possible to hold the historic faith in a way that had some integrity of the past, it probably would be something of a collapse of the whole Christian tradition and the artifice that you build on it. I don't, yes, I don't you, you think happen you can... to believe that Jesus is unique. Indeed. And, and it's not just he as a person, but it's the message he held and he, he preached, which has some unique value for the world, distinct oh, value yes, for the world. Yes, indeed. I think that's, the, that's at the heart of historic Christianity. And I think that the things that we often admire about Christianity as a social institution arise out of these, in a way, paradoxical positions that seem at odds with other things. So I think that various attempts that have been made to make, you know, an up-to-date version of Christianity tended not to have lasted very long. There were, there were numbers of these throughout the years, uh, but they, they tend to have a bit of an efflorescence. But because they don't actually carry something which has, in the end of the day, the, uh, the critical aspect, and I mean the, the, the criticism of society, the, the criticism that God, who is above uh, humans uh, and transcendent of humans, ultimately judges humans, they, they simply become, um, you know, a sort of ritualised version of, of ourselves, which, which in the end doesn't take us out of ourselves, which I think is what uh, faith and religion, one of its unique powers 
is to do. So I, I think it is a paradox, and um, you know, I, I would certainly hope for the continuation and the vitality of historic Christianity. Hugh, does it come back, as, as you move towards at the end of your book, the observation, do you make it, but it's been made many times, perhaps I could go back and quote it from the New Testament, see these Christians how they love one another. Yes. That for you, going through, trawling through the way we believe, that still becomes central. Mm. Yeah. And uh, this is, to me, the essence of spirituality. I don't think you can talk about spirituality without talking about community. Uh, our spiritual life is about, is, is, is almost indivisible from our moral life, uh, in my view. I mean, if you step outside of religion, step outside of Christianity and just look at evolutionary biology, you would come to a very similar conclusion. You'd say, we humans are pathetic in isolation. We only gain strength. We only get a sense of identity in community. We need each other. We need communities to nurture us, sustain us, support us, protect us, and give us a sense of our own identity. Those communities are not guaranteed to survive. They will only survive if we engage with them, if we nurture them, uh, if, we, if we continue to build them up. Uh, how do we do that? Well, we do it by acting in a loving way towards other people. We do it by embracing those we disagree with. We, we do it by living a li life which is deeply respectful of otherness, uh, of inclusiveness. So the core of human survival as a species is that we should be loving to each other. Of course, we're not always. Witness the Middle East, witness Northern Ireland for much of the 20th century, uh, etc. But that's, that's the essential truth about us, that we'll fizzle out as a species if we don't love one another. And that's the, that's the core of the teachings of Jesus as well. It's also the core of every spiritual and mystical tradition. Now, the difference, of course, the Archbishop uh, would say from the perspective of, well, has said from the perspective of the Christian tradition that there is a unique approach to loving kindness coming out of the teachings of Jesus. But the SBNRs would say, or the Buddhists would say, or indeed the Hindus would say, uh, in our tradition, the goal is to be loving, to be respectful, to be accepting of the other. And they don't usually say, because our survival depends on it, but the biologists would say that. And so would the social psychologists. Yes, uh, good morning, everyone. I want to do a very big reveal. I am a miracle baby born... Could you give us in, your name, please? Yes, Hayden's my name. I'm, Thank you, Hayden. I'm a miracle baby born in 1963. At that same time in America, the President of America had a child born premature. I was born 11, 12 weeks premature. Clinically dead, brought back to life, an absolute miracle baby in the 1960s. So, you know, let me just say miracles still occur in a Catholic hospital in Hobart. And, and in terms of people saying there is no miracles or whatever else that happened, that's what happened. Can I ask you about, in your book, I, I spoke to you on uh, 774 several weeks ago at Sport. Can I ask you about, in your book, you say that 30 or 40% of people like the local church being in their area. 88% of non-churchgoers. Well, my question, and the Archbishop, the church obviously needs money to keep going. So are these people who have these views that it's nice to walk past the church, should they not be encouraged in some way? And this is probably to the society in general. In other words, you know, putting $20 into, a, into an envelope and sending it to the local church would not be a bad idea. I am in uh, St John's Turak and we have the church at Kuyong, which we are attempting to keep open at great expense. And I assume 80% of the community like that church being open. But the question is, are they prepared to put their hand in their pocket to pay the rates, the gardening and all that sort of thing that makes it a nice building to walk past? <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, shall I, uh, yes, first of all, when people say, when the 88% who are saying they like the church 
uh, to be there. I don't think their point is architectural. I think they're talking about they like the presence. They, they like to know that in their community, there is a congregation of people who are probably good guys. You know, they're expecting that a church community will contain the people who will be a shining example of feeding the hungry, attending to the needs of the sick and the poor and being generally charitable. Not that people outside the church aren't, of course, but they would expect that of people in the church. So I think it's more to do with uh, the people than the building. Uh, and, of course, many Australians would say we are via the tax-free status of churches, we are putting our hands in our pockets. A very interesting uh, response to your question comes out of Scandinavia, which, by the way, has the lowest level of church attendance in Western society at the moment. But there's a church tax in, I think, all Scandinavian countries, and, and it's voluntary. And roughly 80% of Scandinavians willingly pay the church tax to support an institution that, at the moment, they have a very low level of engagement with. So uh, I think if you said to Australians, I think if a centrepiece of the current election campaign was, will we impose a church tax? Uh, to keep all these uh, churches going, I suspect the answer would be no. Uh, except, except that, as I say, by the tax-free status of religious institutions, we are, in fact, as a community, declaring our support. I think it has been, if you look at the country of Victoria, you can see in many places where pretty much every other institution has gone... Uh, the, the, you know, the mechanics institutes have gone, the Masonic Lodge has gone, the post office has gone, possibly the corner store has gone. And, uh, and I know for my colleagues who are in the, in the country diocese of Victoria, uh, there's this kind of great weight of responsibility of, of, of the, the church being one of the last, the, the last thing that's remaining in many small communities as a focus of, of gathering, a focus of meaning, a place where people can, in their own place, in their own community celebrate the important events of life, of birth, death and marriage, those kind of things, without needing to go to the nearest provincial city. So there's a great weight of those things, and I think it's in a, in a way to what Hayden's saying, that there is a strong yearning, and I know that Hugh quotes, uh, he quotes a different part of, of uh, Philip Larkin's poem, Church Going, the one I generally quote. He quotes the bleak one. I generally quote the more exploratory one where Philip Larkin says that he, he goes past the church and says that uh, this is a ground upon uh, you know, which he had, uh, had sort of knowledge of uh, this was where people once went to learn wisdom. And I think there is some of that yearning uh, that, that we have for, for places, you know, for something which is more than utilitarian. I mean, what an absurd thing. We've got St Paul's Cathedral across the road from here, sitting on probably what is incredibly valuable CBD property. I suppose the responsible thing would be to knock it down and build a lovely, you know, 80-storey tower. That'd be, that'd be the efficient thing. But, you know, it is... It is and, but I think that, you know, a society would do that, would be a utilitarian society, would be a brutalist society, would start looking like Franco's Spain or, or Hitler's Germany. You know, it would... And so I, and I think, that, and you might want to talk about that later, but the whole, you know, the, the, the thing, things you quote from uh, uh, my colleague John Shepard, who was in Perth, about the poetic, that the truth is not always received only in the strict logical narrative, but in the, in the poetic and the, and the beauty. And I think that's what people probably yearn for. In fact, I think one of the things that will drive people back to church for weddings is that the vows composed by brides and grooms are becoming increasingly more excruciating <laughs> and people will be yearning for the language of the traditional service. <laughs> there was a wedding in Perth recently where the bride said, I promise to tell you if you become boring. <laughs> Leonie Bird, Holy Trinity Q, thank you very much for the insight that we've been able to hear this morning. I was intrigued by the distinction you were making between creedal belief and faith. It seemed that your idea of faith was distinct, perhaps even larger. Amongst your respondents, uh, Dr McKay, can you tell us 
the impressions you got of what people regarded as faith and did they feel there was a difference between their personal faith and what the church may express as a creeds and beliefs? Mm. Yes, thank you for that. And there, there, is, there is a difference. Now, I, I acknowledge, and the Archbishop, I'm sure, will want to comment on this also, but I acknowledge there's a degree of word-mongering in this. When people say, I have faith in God, or I believe in God, they may in fact be saying the same thing, but there are distinctions. For example, people generally admire the faith of another person. They do not in the same way admire the, the, the belief in dogma in another person. In fact, they're quite likely to ridicule that. But faith is not ridiculed. And I think that's partly because we know deep in ourselves, deep in our psyches. We know about our personal frailty, our personal inadequacy, our personal vulnerability. And so we all know that we need to place our faith in something larger than ourselves. That's where, as I said earlier, that's where our, that's our source of meaning and purpose. Beliefs do not give people the sense of meaning and purpose in the way that faith does. Now, now, faith in God, faith in the church. For some people, it's faith in music or the power of music. For some people, it's faith in the free market. For some people, it's faith in a political ideology or a social cause. But underneath it all, as I said in, in response to one of John's earlier questions, that the idea of faith in the power of love in the power of kindness and compassion within human communities is something that no one except the most hard-hearted rationalist is going to deny the value of. And I think it's true to say that we all put our faith in something. Luther said, didn't he, something like, you know, everyone has a God, it's, it's you know, whatever you put your faith in. And for some people that's a materialist thing, but, but we all have our faith in something because we are in need of, the, of the, a sense of connection to the greater whole. Now, belief doesn't do that, but faith does. And I think that's the fundamental distinction. And by the way, nothing that I've said should be interpreted as being disrespectful of people's beliefs. I'm absolutely respectful of people's beliefs. As a researcher, stepping back from this, I just have to acknowledge that everyone thinks their beliefs are right, and that's a curious thing when the beliefs are so different from each other. But the underlying faith, particularly in, in, in something other than the free market, or faith in the power of growth, uh, jobs and growth even, uh, <laughs> Uh, is is very very a very very common human experience. Not always in a religious context, but of course one of the reasons why people do go back to church uh, is that they want that faith to be nurtured. Uh, other people may do it through yoga or mindfulness training or meditation groups or pilgrim walks or whatever they they might choose. Yeah, I think uh, in, in the whole uh, long history of Judaism and Christianity, it is uh, moments of faith that uh, the turning points. So Moses on Mount Sinai has uh, an experience of God, and it's, it's a response of faith. People have a response of faith to Jesus, and he says, your faith has made you well. Now, they may not have much, at the moment, much content to what that's about, but on reflection... Uh, and they probably can't actually tell you any uh, any dogmatic position at the time they have faith. But I think faith faith is in that way uh, different to um, uh, the describing of belief. But I think as soon as you start engaging with people more widely outside of your own response of faith, you have to be able to give an account for that in reasonable terms. You have to sort of tell people, well, you know, so Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, he needs to tell the people of Israel what happened to him in, in human language. Uh, people witness what happens around the time of Jesus and his disciples, they communicate it in, in language. So I think that there is, uh, there is this inevitable moving into uh, language and meaning and, uh, and, you know, that that seems a bit unreasonable. How would you explain that, John? You know, sort of thing. And um, so I think that, that's, always, that's always going on and uh, the, the whole system of belief 
that people have, which is the is the sort of the dogmatic basis. And I, I don't use dogmatic in a in a kind of negative or pejorative way. It's generally used. Just you know, what is the belief? But Anglicanism is really um, a reception of Christianity that that often describes itself built on three pillars of sources of scripture, of tradition, and of reason. So for Anglicans, it's been you know, probably very important since the Reformation to apply reason, to say, you know, how, how, how are those propositions of faith, how can they be reasonably articulated? And I think that's the, that's the work of theology, and uh, some people here might enjoy having their minds stretched by some of those theologies, but that really is the the work of theology to try and integrate those things. I don't think we, we have a sense that you can, you can chop out reason. We, you know, I think that, that is a fairly, for Anglicans, it might be for, for other receptions of Christianity, it might be thought that that's testing God too much. But we, we've received for about 400 years that being at the core of what it is to be a Christian. Thank you. Uh, my name is Michael Moynard. I'm actually with the Uniting Church. Uh, but uh, a question really to, to Hugh. With the, um, the age profile of congregations now really moving towards people in their 70s and beyond, what, and you made the point that people may wish to come back to church. The question I have is what sort of church would they want to come back to? Yes. I'm sure the Archbishop will have more enlightened things to say about this than I will, and, and so would John. But I, I would say they will come back to a church that seems to be answering their yearning for faith that gives life a sense of meaning and purpose. They are very unlikely in the post-Enlightenment Western uh, liberal democracy society that we live in, uh, they're most unlikely to come back to a church that says we have all these beliefs that challenge your reason, but you've got to sign up to them in order to be acceptable to us. Now, people who've grown up in a religious tradition, and of course there are fewer of those now because of the decline in church attendance, although they're getting it from schools to some extent, but people who've grown up in a religious tradition will, for example, cheerfully recite a creed uh, as part of the ritual of uh, the liturgy of their particular church. But if you pin them to the wall and say, so do you actually believe in each of those things that you've just said? Many people, I'm sure many people in this theatre would say no, not personally, not literally, but part of the tradition of the church, and I'm happy to say it. Increasingly, people coming new to this uh, will find this very strange and very challenging and will say, wait a minute, you know, I went in there and they all said this, I don't believe that. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a real challenge to reconcile what the Archbishop has been saying very correctly about the need to preserve the tradition and to maintain the core, but uh, unless we are going to be more responsive to the way the world actually is. I mean, the church is an institution and no institution survives forever unless it's responsive to the needs of the community that brought it into being. We, we create institutions to formalise and regulate uh, and celebrate and nurture aspects of our society. But we don't let those institutions go on forever. We have royal commissions into them or we just stop patronising them or something. Uh, we with withdraw their tax-free status. We do all sorts of things to bring them to their knees if we no longer think they're serving us. So it's all about the church listening, uh, the local church. And the Corio example that the Archbishop mentioned is a lovely example of this. The church listening to the needs of its local community, being a place that's something of a community hub. So things are going on there which are not about come and, come and sign up to all this and you're welcome, but just come to our book club, come to our current affairs discussion group, come to whatever we're doing. Um, the Sydney Anglican Diocese, by the way, has just banned yoga classes from church premises. So that's one thing they're not allowed to do, but maybe in Melbourne that's still permitted, although yoga is, of course, a Hindu religious practice. But all these things that churches do, to, so that the church no longer seems like a strange and alien place. But there are reasons for us to come there to be part of the place. It's, on occasions other than just Christmas, 
uh, where we could feel well, this is this is part of our community. This is this is giving us something that we need. This is nurturing our sense of community. It's not just the local library or the local RSL club or something else that's the that's the hub of the community, but the church is as well. Uh, that's you know metaphorically you could say that's feeding the poor. Uh, if you acknowledge that this is a community that is hungry for spiritual nourishment is hungry for the kind of faith that will enlarge their sense of, of who they are. Every local faith community will have its own way of listening to how that hunger is expressed in their local community and responding to it. There'll be some core things, of course, that will always happen, but it's that sense of not of the institution not saying this is what we stand for, this is what we believe. Are you interested in that? If so, you're welcome. It's the opposite. It's the institution saying, what's going on out there? What are, what are the needs? Let's listen and let's respond to what we hear. Archbishop uh, Philip, uh, perhaps to enlarge on that, mm. perhaps the, the most recent examples that the world is aware of would be, say, the contrast between Pope John Paul II and Pope Francis. John Paul II's great cry was, come back to the church. But increasingly, he was speaking to the world that had never been in the church, mm. whereas Pope Francis has seemed to step outside of the walls yeah. and all of a sudden people are saying, yay, this is a man we want to hear from. Yeah, look, I think, um, uh, and I was just reflecting on re really revival movements, I think that, and Salvation Army would be a good one, you are more skilled in understanding than I am, John, but, uh, you know, if I think a revival movement that addresses people who don't have a connection generally has to cut through the noise and they generally do that by having a, a pretty simple doctrinal proposition. And so, you know, Christ, Christian ones um, usually, uh, uh, they, they simplify a lot of the doctrine. And I think there'd be churches in my diocese today where that, this would be the technique. They would say, it is about a relationship with Jesus. The Salvation Army probably had a, a strong preaching that way, temperance, and then some social conformity. Come and in the old days, be part of a band, be part of some street corner things. And, and that was a reasonably simple proposition of conversion and not high on doctrine and intentionally so, no, no sort of sacramental artifice or those things. And I think that that's the character of revival movements and I think you wouldn't be surprised that in many, many churches uh, that grow, they simplify that proposition because there's a lot of noise they've got to cut through and some of the noise is internal noise. Now, I, I think, however, that if you just institutionalise that, you end up in something that probably won't perpetuate itself intergenerationally because it doesn't have the, the richness of the tradition. So if you like me an Anglican, and you think that scripture is important, tradition is important, and reason is important, you won't want to see the loss of everything that's happened. You won't jettison that. So I think that there, there's, a, you know, again, something of a paradox in this, that, that often the vitality of revival movements, they, they express a simplicity, and, and it's the simplicity that cuts through all the noise but by itself, without some of the richness of, of the, the harder things you've got to do the work on, they probably won't really feed people and go on to the future. They might, you know, they might become a, you know, a charitable and good works entity or something, but they won't actually be over... A, and I suppose I tend to think in centuries, they won't tend to be you know, the Christian church which carries the historic faith of Christianity. So I think it is a paradox... Uh, but there is uh, there's a lot of noise, and uh, and I think uh, we've got actually some big experiments at the moment across different denominations, as to uh, you know what what the cut through simplicity is. In some, it'll be the the simplicity of relationship; others, it'll be the simplicity of engagement uh, with the community and its ideas. In others, it'll be the simplicity of the engagement with the ideas of historic Christianity. And I think they don't have to be all incompatible. But I'd hope that we would learn from each other. I was just up at another new church at Munda, and uh, it's a growing community, not much community infrastructure. And there, the, the Anglican church, the priest who's there working with the Brother of St. Lawrence, really heavily embedded in the community, really committed with some groups that serve the community, some church members and non-church members wanting to serve the community. And he had an interesting phrase. He says, uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So that was a bit of the proposition of, of you know, how you cut through the noise yeah. about caring for people in that place. And I think that there'll be different propositions and um, there's, no, uh, there's no, you know, one that probably is going to be successful or necessary to the exclusion of others. They should be all in some dialogue. Would you please join me in thanking Hugh McKay and John Cleary together with Archbishop Phillips.
Yeah, thank, thanks, uh, Chris. And uh, I think that you can see the, the things that really are part of the human heart that we're touching on today. And I think uh, I'm very grateful for, for you's many books. And, uh, and I, uh, I think he's a, a wonderful source of uh, wisdom and reflection on what, what, it, what is happening in our society. And, and I think he's quite right to look at how these, um, these attributes of belief, faith, belonging, religion are part of that, that whole big picture. So I'm very, very grateful for that. And I'm grateful for your attendance. One day, if it is one day after the, the winter solstice, um, we would kind of didn't, we think we don't always do things in winter because it's not a great time to come out. So thank you for your perseverance and, uh, and early rising. I'm going to conclude with a prayer. If you're a person who prays, you might want to let that prayer be your words. If you're not, Perhaps hear them as words and uh, go and muse and reflect on them. <laughs> Loving God, we thank you that uh, you bring us to these deep things about our human identity, our belonging, our belief. We ask that uh, if we have a, a yearning within our hearts this morning, that it might be one that you would hear and uh, we would ask that you would respond to us out of our yearning and out of our calling. We thank you for the opportunity of exploring and opening up these things. We pray that we might have a, a deeper understanding of uh, life's purposes and our part in it. And help us to be people who are uh, charitable to others, who seek to grow in love and seek to contribute to the world, its peace and its flourishing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. New episodes of Anything But Square are released every Wednesday. And we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and sign up to our newsletter at bedsquare.com. Take care and we'll see you next Wednesday.